Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. And Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now nearing the end of the application section of this letter, and it's been very good, and it's been very challenging. And the call is to rise to the challenge because we love Christ, right? And love for Christ is what compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. Recently, Paul's been imploring us to be spirit-filled Christians who do the will of God as found in the Word of God. Generally, this is seen in many ways, but specifically and in context, Paul told us that it's God's will for us in Christ to be spirit-filled, to sing in the heart and to sing out loud, to give thanks always for all things, and then to submit to one another in the fear of God. After that, Paul had a word for spirit-filled wives who were doing the will of God, and then he had some words for spirit-filled husbands who were doing the will of God. Last time, Paul addressed children, and he addressed parents, and today... Paul is showing us what spirit-filled bondservants and masters look like. Let's find out what he has to say, verse 5. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as man-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. We're going to stop here for now. And the first thing we find is a word for bondservants. That's interesting, isn't it? The Greek word for bondservant is the word doulos, and it's also the word that's used for slaves. The word describes someone who's bound to another in servitude. The word conveys the idea of a slave's close binding ties with his master, how he belongs to him, how he's obligated to do his master's will, and how he's a, a permanent, in a permanent relation of servitude to his master, slave. That brings up a couple of questions, doesn't it? Does the Bible actually condone slavery? Does the Bible support slavery? And not only that, why doesn't the Bible just condemn slavery? Some people actually use this as an accusation against God and His Word. Now, there are two ways that we can approach this. The first approach goes something like this. One, slavery is morally reprehensible in all situations. Two, the Bible allows slavery. Therefore, the Bible is an unreliable moral guide. How about the second approach? The second approach goes like this. One, the Bible is indeed a moral reliable guide, a a reliable moral guide. Two, the Bible allows slavery. Therefore, slavery isn't morally reprehensible in all situations. Well, we believe that the Bible is indeed a a reliable moral guide, and we believe that the Bible is indeed our final authority and rule for living, so let's go ahead and look at this. Note first that slave ownership was a common practice long before the law of God was given in the Old Testament. Interestingly, God's law neither instituted slavery nor ended slavery, but instead, God's law regulated slavery. See, it gave instructions on how slaves should be treated, but it didn't outlaw slavery altogether. Why not? 
Well, first, let's look at slavery in the Old Testament. Look, the law of God allowed for Hebrew men and women to sell themselves into slavery to another Hebrew. They could only serve for six years, however, because in the seventh year, they were to be set free. That arrangement amounted to what we might call indentured servitude, which was basically contract work for a period of time. Note that biblically, slaves were to be treated well. Do not make them work as slaves. They're to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you, Leviticus 25, 39 through 40. The law of God also stated that when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you, Deuteronomy 15, 13 through 14. On top of that, the freed slave had the option of staying with his master and becoming a servant for life, which a number of them did, Exodus 21, 5 through 6. All right, so what about, uh, that, that was Hebrews or Jews with other Jews, but what about Jews with Gentile slaves, non-Jewish slaves? Yes, God did allow for his people to take slaves from among a people that they had conquered. Note, however, that there were several laws that regulated that, And those laws gave some basic rights to those slaves. And they also curtailed the actions of masters in a very radical way. I mean, in the ancient world outside of Israel, slaves had absolutely no rights. But God's law extended to slaves the right to keep a wife, the right not to be sold to foreigners, the right to be adopted into a family by marriage, and the right to food and clothing. See, in ancient times, slavery was simply a way of life. And it could be a good experience or a bad experience based on the character of the people involved. There were good masters and there were bad ones. There were good slaves and there were bad slaves. There were some cruel masters who abused their slaves. And sometimes there were wicked slaves who abused and stole from their masters who were being good to them. So slavery really was a way of life and it could be good or bad. As one noted, it could be a very profitable and beneficial form of employment for people. On the other hand, it could be an evil form of oppression. On the other hand, some slaves served their masters masters well and therefore prospered greatly in their lives, and others were criminal in their intent and their behavior and suffered immensely because of it. So good and bad. All right, so, so what did the Bible do about that? This, it regulated how both masters and servants conducted themselves. Servants were to be carefully protected, honored, and respected just as anyone else had to be. They were to be treated with dignity. They were to be treated with respect. And they were never, ever to be mistreated. Note this. The Bible never, ever, ever condones sinful behavior, right? We know that. It never condones people treating other people like animals, It never condones any kind of oppressive bondage where people are abused and where families are broken up. Never, never, never. Now to the Romans, slaves often had no rights and they were often given no protection and no kindness. But again, that wasn't the case in the Old Testament with the people of God. There, having servants and slaves was not considered a moral evil or else it would have been certainly condemned. In fact, as one noted, very often... Someone who was a slave was like an employee of a family who lived with that family, who enjoyed all the benefits, all the wealth and prosperity, all the food and all the fellowship and all the joys of that family. And that's important to remember when we're talking about this. 
that what we ourselves think of slavery today is probably radically different than what was happening in the Bible, generally speaking. Hey, we'll never defend the slavery that happened in America in the 1800s. Right? I mean, sinful behavior is sinful behavior, and God hates that. That said, and let me repeat, the form of slavery that existed in the Old Testament was regulated by God's laws of kindness and care, and slaves were to be protected like children, and they were to be cared for like family members. Also remember that every 50th year was the Jubilee year, and that meant that all property reverted to its original owner, and all slaves were set free. And look, many of them didn't want that. They wanted to stay where they were because it was a blessing to them. So let me just summarize this because I want this to be clear to us. First, there were indeed abuses of slavery. Of course there were, where slaves were abused and treated like animals and exploited and suffered terribly at the hands of their owners, and that's never right. And the Bible never says that that's right. That said, by the first century, the treatment of slaves was greatly improved, generally speaking. Slaves under Roman law in the first century could generally count on being set free. Nearly 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. Even more, while the slave remained his master's possession, he could still own property, including other slaves. And he could completely, uh, he completely controlled his own property so that he could invest and save to purchase his own freedom. Also note that being a slave didn't indicate one's social status. See, slaves regularly were accorded the social status of their owners. Regarding outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish a slave from a free person. I mean, a slave could be a custodian, a salesman, or even a CEO. Many slaves lived separately from their owners. And then finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship and gaining an entrance into society. And so we see that Roman slavery, generally speaking, was far more humane than what we today understand slavery to be. So again, the question, why didn't the Bible just attack slavery? A few reasons. One, because of the positive reforms that were already happening regarding slavery at that time. Two, because the institution of slavery wasn't generally considered evil by slaves or masters at that time. Three, because to attack slavery would have wrongly labeled Christianity as economically subversive. And four, because eventually the radical brotherhood and equality that's explicit in the gospel would eventually provide a death knell down the line to slavery. As Warren Wearsby pointed out, The Lord chooses to change people and society gradually through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God. And that's right. And so the Lord, through Paul, addressed both slaves and masters directly, and he showed how their faith should radically change the way that they related to one another. One note of this. The seeds of the emancipation of slaves are in the Bible which teaches that all man, men are created by God and made in His image, which condemns those who kidnap and sell a person, and which shows that a slave can truly be a brother in the Lord. That's absolutely right. So, slavery was a part of life at that time. I mean, nearly one-third to even one-half of the population in the Roman world were slaves. So, not again, not condoning any kind of sinful behavior or sinful system, 
What is a call for spirit-filled people to do, either as slaves or masters at that time? Note this. The application for us today would be the employer-employee relationship. In this, we see how Christian employers and employees are called to conduct themselves. And although this text was clearly written to slaves and masters, it applies directly to employers and to employees, and it shows practically how those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who subject themselves to one another in the fear of Christ should relate to one another in the workplace. Note that in the context of Ephesians, some in the church were masters, and some, if not many in the church, were slaves or ex-slaves, also called freedmen. So virtually every person in the Ephesian church had an interest in what Paul's going to say next. Look at the call. That bond servants are called to obey their masters. The word obey literally means to hear under or to listen under. And the sense of the word is to listen with attentiveness and then to respond positively to what is heard with obedience. So the word implies really listening with a readiness to execute and to obey that which is requested. The word also implies an inward attitude of respect and honor that goes along with the external act of obedience itself. Note that this is to be the continual practice of the slave, and it's not to uh, be a hit-and-miss kind of thing. So the call isn't to rebel, no. The call is to be a Christian where they are, to glorify and honor God where He has them. Now again, the direct application for us today is for employers and employees, so I'm going to use those words sometimes, knowing that this was addressed first and primarily to slaves and to owners. Now, Please note that there are times when a Christian slave or employee must refuse to obey their master or their employer. When is that? When obedience would dishonor God, right? When obedience would go against a clear command of God. You can't do that because we must obey God rather than men. For example, if your boss asks you to lie for him or juggle the books or take advantage of a customer, then you must respectfully refuse to do that for the glory of God. That said, your normal mode of operation should be for slaves in that day to obey their masters and for us today, for workers today, to obey their bosses, okay? That's clear to the call. How? How? First, with fear and trembling, verse 5. Fear is a, from the Greek word phobos, and it conveys a positive sense of respect and reverential and wholesome fear or awe. Trembling comes from the Greek word traumas, from which we get our English word tremor. And it describes a trembling and a quaking and a a quivering with a positive sense of the word conveying the idea of exhibiting profound reverence and respect. That's how the slave then and the worker today is to obey their master or their employer. Note that this doesn't mean cowering in fear before your boss. It doesn't mean that. Instead, It refers to fearing God in light of the final judgment and then responding accordingly. It means to do your job well so that your boss won't think poorly of your Lord. Now think about it. If you wouldn't do shoddy work for Christ, then you don't do shoddy work for your boss. Because ultimately, look, we answer to the Lord who is always watching us. So be respectful as a worker because We don't really do what we do to please our masters or to please our bosses. No, we do what we do to please our God, see? Hey, 
Would you make pizza that way if Jesus was watching? Would you talk to that customer that way if your customer was Jesus? Would you spend your time on the clock that way if you knew that you would give an account of your time before the Lord? Well, guess what? Jesus is watching. And everything we do as believers is indeed before his face. And we will all give an accounting to him for our actions and for our deeds and be rewarded accordingly. And that should impact how we live and how we work and everything else that we do, regardless of the master or earthly boss that we have. So be respectful to your boss. Don't ignore your boss. Don't say yes and then not do what he asks you to do. Don't roll your eyes and then mess around because you think that what he asked of you is dumb. (laughs) No, instead, obey with fear and trembling knowing that your good God is always watching and he's the one that we're aiming to please with the work that we do, slave or worker. All right, what else? Slaves then and workers today are to obey with sincerity of heart. What does that mean? The word used here means singleness, simplicity, uprightness, and mental honesty. It describes someone who's free from pretense and dishonesty. It speaks of a person being motivated by singleness of purpose so that they are above board, they are without guile, and they don't have a hidden agenda. So the sincere of heart person is a person of true integrity that is then expressed in word and in action. So it's not just an outward show, and it's not feigned obedience. No, it's genuine. It's real. It's it's true obedience. So how is that possible when you have a really bad master or when you have a really bad boss? It's possible when you're spirit-filled. It's possible, in other words, it's possible when you are a true Christian who is intent on glorifying God and fighting sin. And look, it's possible when you look unto Christ for your approval and not unto man. Again, yes, your boss is your boss, but ultimately God is the one that you answer to and he calls you to obey sincerely. And when you have God as your motivation, then sincerity shouldn't really be an issue. See? Look at what Paul adds. As to Christ, that's how we are to obey. Slaves then and workers today. As to Christ, the end of verse 5. In other words, obey as if Christ was watching because again, He is. Right? In 1 Peter 3.18, it says that slaves are to obey their masters because of conscience. Now what does that mean? That's the same thing that Paul's saying here, as to Christ. See, as to conscience is speaking of the clear knowledge of the presence of God in your life. The knowledge that God is watching, that that, that God is present, that God sees, that, that God is near. The point that Peter's making is that because God is near and because God knows, we will then do what God calls us to do for His glory. Where we say, God is watching me and I want to glorify Him. Therefore, I will submit to my master, even to my bad master. Why? Because I want God to be pleased with me. It's so important, not only for the slaves of Peter and Paul's day, but also for any worker today and then for everyone else. God is right here. Right? He's he's right here. God is watching. God knows. God sees. And I want Him to see and know good things when He sees me. See, when God looks down at me, I want Him to see someone who's obedient. I want Him to see someone who's faithful. I want Him to see someone who's standing strong when, when things are hard. I want Him to find me representing him well. 
I want him to see someone who's honoring him in all the ups and downs of this fading life. And so the conscience that Peter's talking about here specifically is the conscience and the awareness of God's immediate presence. He sees us, right? Right? I mean, his eye is on us. And that's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians as well. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he, he, he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his, Second Chronicles 16.9. And that reality should drive all of us to radical obedience, even slaves, even workers. Hey, we take God with us wherever we go, right? He lives in us. He's sovereign. God hears every word that we say. Shouldn't that affect the words that we say? God knows our every thought. Shouldn't that affect the things that we dwell on? God sees everything that we see and watch and look at. Shouldn't that change the things that we look at? That's the point, and that's why these Christian slaves are called to submit to their masters, because it honors and glorifies the Lord when you submit to them with all fear. And that pleases Him. That should settle things, shouldn't it? That should settle things. If it pleases God, then I must do it. What then is the call? To be motivated by a sense of uh, a quorum deo type of awareness. Quorum deo is a Latin term that means before the face of God. And the call is to live like that, to work like that, to serve your master like that. As John Eady noted, the slaver worker today is ever tempted to appear to labor while he is yet loitering, to put on the seeming of obedience and obey with a double heart. The counsel of the apostle, therefore, is that he should obey in singleness of aim, giving undivided effort and attention to the task at hand, for it was to be done as to Christ. And that's absolutely correct. Look what Paul adds in verses 6 and 7. Not with eye service as man-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, there it is again, and not to men. So again, we see that everything is to be done as to the Lord and not to men, because He's the one that we are seeking to glorify and honor, not men, right? Not really, right? Not men, God. So, slaves and workers, don't do what you do with eye service as men pleasers. What does that mean? It means that you don't just work hard when your boss is looking in order to get his approval and then slack off when he's not around. See, a man-pleaser worries about what people think, but he's not concerned with what God thinks. That's wrong as a Christian, for we're primarily concerned with what God thinks, and that should affect everything that we do. See, God cares about how you spend your time. God cares about how you are as a worker since you represent Him. God cares about how you talk and how you drive and how you parent and how you are as a spouse and how you are when no one else is around. God cares about all of that and God is watching you. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. God cares, see? And if God is watching, and He is, and if God cares, and He does, then everything we do should be done with a keen awareness of the watching eye of God. And that means that even how we wash the dishes or make the bed or clean the bathroom and so on, that should be done with excellence and not with laziness as unto the Lord. See, that even goes for slaves in menial tasks or for any worker today in whatever duty that they are called to do. Look, I I believe... The call here 
It's for slaves, workers, and every Christian to do what they do, whatever they do, as if they were doing it for Christ himself. Because you are. Ultimately, ultimately, as a Christian, you are. This shows us that there is no distinction between your Christian life and your work life. As John MacArthur says, there's nothing in your life that's secular. You don't have a spiritual life and a secular life. You just have your life. And everything you do, whether you're working on an assembly line or whether you're working as a secretary or whether you're working in some kind of paperwork or whether you're doing some menial manual kind of labor or whether you're doing construction or whether you're teaching school or whether you're running employees here and there and underneath the the head of your company, whatever it is you're doing is all done unto Christ. It's all sacred. Your whole life is a sacred act of worship, your whole life. And that's absolutely correct. And so when you go to work tomorrow, that is an opportunity for you to express your love to Jesus, right? You're to work and offer your service to an earthly employer as if you were serving Jesus, because again, you really are. See, every Christian is in full-time Christian service to Jesus, working for God's glory so that others may be brought to the knowledge of Christ. And if you have a Christian who's uh, discontent with his job, or who's a poor worker, lazy, not diligent, who seeks to get out of every task, who's not willing to volunteer for the extra things, well, that all is a dishonor to the Lord because He cares about all that. And so should we. So slaves are to obey, look, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, honest, upright, (coughs) undivided, conscientious, Genuine loyalty and commitment to do your very best is what God asks for slaves, for all workers, and for all Christians. From the heart. And that's only possible when we understand clearly that we are doing what we do for the Lord Jesus Christ and not really, not really for our earthly masters. Not really. Therefore, Christians should be the best employees on the job, right? Is that true of you? Look at the reason why. Look, the motivation for slaves to obey their masters and for workers today to work hard is under the Lord, even if they had bad bosses, is what? Because God will reward good done for his glory, verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Or as Colossians 3.23 says, a parallel passage, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now the good in verse 8 is godly good, right? Talking about things that have eternal value, things that are done for him, things that please him, things that glorify him, things that are eternally good and things that are eternally fruitful. Like what? Well, like obeying your master as unto Christ, like that. Or Anything else we do because we love the Lord, because of His reality in our lives, because we are seeking to honor Him with our fading lives. Look, that all has eternal value. 2 Corinthians 5.9, look what Paul says. We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. Why, Paul? Well, verse 10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's something I don't think we really think about too often that we do well to think about. That as Christians, we too will answer to God for how we live. Now please understand that 
The judgment for a Christian and judgment for a non-Christian are radically different. Judgment for the non-Christian, which is called the great white throne judgment as described in Revelation chapter 20, is that judgment where non-believers will stand before God, where the books of their lives will be opened up, and where they will then be held accountable for their sin and for their rejection of Christ, which will then bring condemnation and eternal judgment to them. That's not what Paul is talking about here. But instead, this judgment is a judgment of evaluation for the Christian for how he or she lived out their faith. It's a judgment of the works of a Christian. The word judgment seat is a Greek word bima, which literally means step as an erased platform or seat. This is where a, a Roman magistrate sat to act as a judge. The Bema seat was an object of reverence and fear for all the people, especially for those who stood before it. And look, a person who stood before this Bema seat would have his or her deeds examined for the purpose of either indicting them or for rewarding them. And what we find is that in the same manner, we as Christians will stand before God and give an accounting for how we lived out our faith. And this is not a judgment for sin, since every sin of every believer was judged at the cross where God punished Jesus in our place as believers. And this is not a judgment of condemnation, since therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, this is simply a judgment of evaluation and a judgment of eternal rewards. So no. As Christians, we are already saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and we no longer stand condemned in our sin because of the cross. Praise the Lord. However, we will still be held accountable for how we lived out our faith, and then we will be rewarded accordingly. So, how you live as a Christian matters. You see, how you live as a Christian matters, and it will be accounted for before the Lord. Note that every Christian will appear before this judgment seat, this Bema seat, and no one will escape it. We will all give an accounting. In that day, the full truth about our lives, our character, and our deeds will be made clear. Each will discover the real verdict of his life, of his ministry, of his service, and of his motives. As one says, all hypocrisy will be stripped away. All temporal matters with no eternal significance will vanish like wood, hay, and stubble. And only what's to be rewarded as eternally valuable will be left. In other words... <coughs> Your life as a Christian, your fruitfulness as a Christian, your stewardship as a Christian will be accounted for before God. What we have done as Christians will be evaluated. So we need to understand that it's possible to have a saved soul and to have a virtually wasted life, although it's not recommended. More than that, though, this reality should be an encouragement in our own service to the Lord. And it should remind us of the principle in Hebrews 6.10, which states, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. In other words, God sees all, God knows all, he knows your heart, he sees your Christian works, your sacrifices, your service, and he will not forget. And when you stand before him, he will not forget, and he will reward you accordingly. Don't believe me? Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. You believe me, right? Let's, let's uh, beat this dead horse a little more. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 to drive this point home. Here, 1 Corinthians 3, 12. Here Paul's speaking to Christians. And he's talking about what will happen on the day that we will stand before God at this judgment of assessment and reward. 
The foundation described in this passage is salvation through Christ. And Paul's clearly speaking to those who are already saved. Listen to what he says, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation of salvation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Wow. I mean, here in this passage, Paul makes it clear that what we have done and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire and the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that's not of him. No, again, we won't be punished for what was not done rightly unto the Lord. It's simply going to be burned up. It's going (coughs) to go away. It's all going to disappear and it will be as if we never did those things at all. And then we will be rewarded for what remains. In other words, how you live your Christian faith out matters greatly. It doesn't save you, but it matters and it reaps eternal reward. It reaps eternal blessing. And so you can waste your life away on wood, hay, and straw on those things that have no value in eternity, not recommended, Or you can live for gold, silver, and precious stones, which represents the things that have eternal value, what you do for God and what you do for the glory of God, like slaves obeying your masters for the glory of God, or like you doing your work as unto the Lord for the glory of God, or serving Him, giving to Him, sharing your faith, saying no to sin, showing Christ to others, to your family, your kids, your spouse, growing in Christ, drawing near to Christ, Christian fellowship, Christian encouragement, reading His Word so that you can then put it into practice, prayer, working for His glory, living for His glory, honor, and pleasure. See, all those things will be rewarded by Him. All those things that we do because we love Him, because of His reality in us, because we want to please Him and glorify Him, those things matter and they will be rewarded accordingly. So, how you live and work and talk and everything else, it matters. And it will be rewarded accordingly. So slaves, obey as unto the Lord that has eternal value. Think about that. What's the reward? Well, pleasing God is the ultimate reward for any Christian. Think about finally standing before the Lord and seeing Him face to face and being able to have all this fruit from a faithful life, all this gold, silver, and precious stones to present to Him on that day. Here, Lord, I did it all for You. And our Lord will respond, well done. Well done. I am well pleased. How good is that? There's nothing better than that. What about you? Will you say, here, Lord, Here's my duffel bag. Or would you prefer to say, Here, Lord, here's my truckload, and another truck is on the way. How good is that? I did it all for you, Lord. What would you rather have? And he's pleased. Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well, either way, and however it looks, we in Christ will not only be rewarded with eternal life, which is a free gift. Thank you, Lord. 
but we'll also be rewarded for the good works that we've done for his glory, for the spiritual fruit we bore because of our love and our faithfulness to him. That's a fact, and that's great motivation to obey, even as slaves or workers or for any Christian for that matter. God sees, God knows, God will reward. Paul moves on from here to talk to masters. Look what he says in verse 9. You masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So the call for masters is to do the same for them. What does that mean? It means that masters are to act toward their slaves with the same regard to the will of God, with the same recognition of the authority of Christ, and with the same sincerity and good feeling which had been enjoined on the slaves themselves. In other words, Christian employers should treat their employees as the employer would want to be treated as if he was the employee, knowing that God is watching. So masters, treat your slaves as if they were Christ. And bosses, treat your workers as if they were Christ himself. That's that's the correct perspective. So be godly and kind and honest and fair and gracious and loving and and good, because God's watching you, and God cares about how you are as a boss or a master. That's radical stuff, and this would have upended the worldview and the daily practices of virtually every slave-owning household. But hey, that is the way of Christ. And so, with inspired wisdom, Paul enables the gospel to progress in a society that approves slavery, while also planting seeds for its eventual destruction as Christians lived out their faith and their calling to honor God where he had them. Look what Paul singles out about how these masters are called to lead. First, he says, give up, abandon, and cease threatening, which speaks of being harsh, menacing, and even abusive. He's saying, stop doing that. Stop doing that, and that alone would have been a shocking command in that day. But again, this is the way of Christ. Look, the law of that day had already forbidden a master to throw a slave to the wild beasts, but no statute ever forbade threatening. But Paul does, God does through Paul. And so not only was no unjust and cruel punishment to be inflicted, but look, even threatening was to be spared because it's not godly behavior, menacing, harsh, intimidating, degrading. Hey, stop that. Stop that. Note that Paul isn't saying that masters couldn't give a proper warning to a disobedient or lazy slave. He's not saying that, but instead, he means that he's to treat his slave with respect. Not demeaning him or threatening him with terrifying punishment and not degrading him. Note that during the same time that Paul wrote Ephesians from prison, he'd met and led a runaway slave named Omnisimus to Christ. Now, runaway slaves were generally executed or at least punished so severely that it served as a lesson to other slaves not to try to do the same thing. But look, Paul wrote to Philemon, the Christian slave owner, and he told them that he should now treat Onesimus as a beloved brother in Christ. This is radical stuff that went against the culture of the day. But hey, that's how Christian masters should treat their slaves back then, and that's how Christian workers and employees, employers, sorry, should treat their employees, knowing that they both have the same Lord in heaven. And look, there's no partiality with him. So that's second. Give up threatening and be impartial. Now think about this. In a sense, masters are fellow slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we all are, right? 
And these earthly masters will indeed render an account to their master at his judgment seat. And that includes how they treated their slaves. Not like everyone else, no, but in a manner that glorifies and honors Christ who is watching. So every Christian, wherever they're at, is accountable to God. The question is, is he pleased? So don't be partial. Look, the Lord to whom slaves and masters are accountable, is completely impartial himself. The word literally means to receive a face. It shows us that we shouldn't prefer one person over another because of their appearance, their face, their clothes, their skin color, their wealth, or any other aspect of their outward appearance. Look, partiality means that before you decide how to treat a person, it depends on what they look like, or on what they wear, or on what color their skin is, or so on. That is not the case with God. And it shouldn't be the case with us. See, God is not going to judge on the basis uh, of the surface. God doesn't receive face. God's not partial like that in any way. Partiality is the fault of the one who gives judgment with respect to the outward circumstances, and not to inward merit. And God is not like that. Partiality is to have respect of a person's appearance and a rule in favor of what you see on the surface rather than what you know to be true in the heart. God doesn't do that. And just as God isn't impressed by the externals, neither should any of us be either. See, God doesn't care. Not really if you're a slave or a, or a slave owner. That doesn't impress him. See, not one bit. God looks to the heart. God isn't fooled. God can't be bought. God isn't impressed by the outside of a person. And God sees through all that. And that's good to know whether you're considered to be a great person by others or whether you're considered to be not much according to others. Who cares? God sees. And and God knows. And God's the one that matters. Master or slave, God's our true master and he keeps accurate records and earthly rank has no merit in heaven. Not any. So, in regard to the treatment of slaves, spirit-filled masters should be impartial like their master as the Lord Jesus Christ is. The verdict here is this, that in everything that we do as Christians, Christ is our master, he's our employer, he's the one for whom we are working, he's the one to whom we will all give an account and that means that everything we do Every service that we render is ultimately for him and it's precious to him. Slave or master, employer or employee, every single one of us here. The call then is to live in such a way that you adorn the teaching about God well. That you show the evidence of God having transformed your life in the way that you treat your work, in the way that you lead, in the way that you live, in the way that you do everything else. It all matters. It all matters. And God sees. And even if you're never rewarded for that in this life, hey, your master in heaven will indeed reward you throughout eternity. Good to remember. May God speak to our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word of truth. And I pray that your word would sink in and hit its mark so that we would do all that we do as unto you for your glory honoring you, treating others the way we would want to be treated and the way every human should be treated, knowing that you are watching. So Lord, help us and give us strength to to live uh, with a sense of quorum Deo, 
before the face of you. May that affect everything that we do. We love you. We thank you. I pray that you would bless us as we go out and and especially encourage and bless our mothers. In Jesus' name, amen.